The following program contains adult content, strong language, and graphic descriptions of violence. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Welcome to Your Fantasy. Ray was funny, charming, but with a current tension underneath all of that, that he could snap any moment, so to speak. There was a a phone call intercepted by the um, FBI where they said that you've got a problem, there's a hitman coming to kill some male dancers with a syringe full of poison. Just a tad of cyanide is going to kill you. It was peculiar and certainly wasn't very professional. I hear what you're doing with this guy, Steve, and you're taking it for him on the chin. Why are you doing that? So screw him. Give him up. I'm telling you. I'm ordering you. Give him up. Turns out there's actually only one person alive today who really experienced firsthand what happens next in the story of Chippendales. His name is Scott Gariola. Until last year when he retired, Gariola was an FBI special agent and a pretty famous one. He's best known for taking down Boston mob boss Whitey Bulger in 2011. Since the early days of this series, we knew we wanted to talk to Gariola, hear how he chased down Steve Banerjee. We wrote and emailed and called for an entire year, but no response. So we used the Freedom of Information Act, FOIA, to get the FBI files from the government. We found the court transcripts where Gariola testified. We talked to his colleagues, and we watched every interview he gave in the past. In the end, we decided Gariola was ignoring us, and that what we had would have to suffice. But then, in the last few weeks of production of this show, we tried to call him one last time, and he picked up. I mean, every day, you don't know what you're going to get. If you're going to get into a shooting, a car chase, a fight. But, you know, it's just the thrill, you know, the the hunting of man, that old uh, line by Hemingway that there's no greater, you know, thrill or joy than the hunting of man. Back in 1991, he's just a few years into his FBI career, a young hotshot who doesn't always play well with others. Kind of a recurring theme in my career is I don't get along well with supervisors. I remember in my evaluation at Quantico, the counselor there uh, put a line in my evaluation that I have a tendency to be inappropriately bold at times. He reminds me a little of Johnny Utah, Keanu Reeves' character in Point Break. If Johnny Utah had grown up in the Bronx and wouldn't be caught dead in a wetsuit. I like to take risks. I like to take chances. I don't like to, you know, just follow... Uh, the ordinary, and I, I like to be creative and inventive as far as my investigations, and I think that's kind of what was successful, made it successful with the Chippendales thing, is that we kind of thought out of the box. In late 1991, Gariola gets pulled into a wild case with an old-school agent named Andrew Stefanik. It's a murder for hire, involving a bunch of male strippers. You might remember from last episode that Ray Cologne, Steve Banerjee's reluctant henchman, hired a guy to go to the UK and murder the members of a troop called Adonis. The plan was to inject them with cyanide, which Ray provided. Ray was arrested for arranging the hit. And then, five months later, his lawyer reaches out to the FBI. Cologne wanted to uh, cooperate. He wanted to, what they call, proffer. Uh, Proffer is basically you come in and you get one chance to tell your story and to offer a deal to the United States uh, government and they can't charge you with anything that 
comes from your story. It's basically to uh, the first step in arranging a plea agreement. On February 6, 1992, Gary Ola meets with Ray Colon for the first time. I mean, he looked like, you know, I'm from New York. He kind of looked like, uh, you know, a guy you'd expect with half Italian, half Puerto Rican. Uh, he kind of carried his way. You know, he had that kind of East Coast swagger, so which I was familiar with, obviously. So, you know, I, I mean, he, he seemed like a, a pretty straight shooter. It didn't seem like a tough guy. It didn't seem like a hard ass. As Gariola put it, for the next three hours, Ray Colon bears his soul. Colon gets very emotional, uh, especially at this at this time. You know, he gets very emotional. I think he, you know, he, you know, had to had to come to Jesus moment. That's you know, I don't know at what point it was, but very emotional as he's telling the story. Ray starts at the beginning. He was a traffic school instructor. He was a maintenance guy in an apartment complex. So the, the apartment complex where he lived was right next to Chippendale. So that's how he became friendly with Banerjee. And I think it just became kind of a symbiotic type of relationship. Cologne used to get money from him, do odd jobs for him. Banerjee needed odd jobs. Cologne was somebody he could trust. Sometimes the odd jobs were like, fix the plumbing or whatever. And other times they were like, burn down my competitor's club. Ray tells Gariola that on three separate occasions, Banerjee offered him $7,000 to commit arson. Ray says he blew off Banerjee's requests or purposely screwed them up. And over time, Steve got more and more upset that Ray wasn't delivering. It's not very dramatic until Ray starts talking about this this conspiracy. Uh, Not only the conspiracy that happened in 1991, but he drops a bigger bombshell on us. In early 1986, Banerjee took Ray out for lunch. He told him, look, you have a debt you need to settle. The seven grand for those failed arsons. And now I need you to settle it. Ray described this moment in the British documentary Chippendales, A Secret History. He said, I want someone murdered. I said, are you out of your mind? And I said, no, that ain't gonna happen, Steve. He said, come on, man, you know, you do the right thing for your friend. The person Banerjee wanted murdered, of course, was his business partner, Nick DeNoya. Colonna's resistant at first, but Banerjee keeps pressuring him, reminding Ray how much money he gave him over the years. Money for unsuccessful arsons. Money Ray never paid back. Plus, they were close friends, and Banerjee would take care of him, he promised. He promised he would give Cologne anything he wanted. He'd buy him a house, and then he would switch tactics, and he said, if you don't do this for me, I've got friends in organized crime. That'll take care of you. And then Cologne would say to him, well, why don't you just have them do the hit? That's what they're good at. And have them murder Denoya. And he said, I can't do that because then they'll own my business. I'll, I'll have nothing left. He says, Steve, that's a hell of a thing. He says, come on, just get someone to do it. This guy, Denoya, is killing me. You know, he's, he's taking millions from me. You know? And I guess that's when I sold my soul. You know? Ray knew better than to kill Nick himself. So he hired a guy named Louis Lopez to pull the trigger, a small-time crook and heroin addict who'd helped him with those unsuccessful arsons. And this time, Banerjee got his money's worth. Even though everyone knew Banerjee was behind it, no one could connect him to Nick's murder. Until this moment. Ray's deal with the FBI begins a game of cat and mouse between him and Banerjee, with Special Agents Gariola and Stefanik calling the shots, that will last for nearly two years. There's a lot of risk involved, and like I told you before, I like to take risks. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they cost me a lot. I'm Natalia Petrozella. This is Welcome to Your Fantasy. Episode 7, The Golden Goose.
So we had this elaborate, from 1979 to 1991, this conspiracy or these allegations of crimes that Cologne was telling us, which you know, we really had no evidence of. Uh, we, had to, we had to corroborate. So by this point, Ray's told the feds everything he knows about Steve's life of crime. The Adonis hit, the Genoia murder, all of the other criminal activity from the past 12 years. And then Ray promises to help them capture his old friend. Ray was not an asshole. He was not a hard ass or anything like that. You know, he was very accommodating to us. And, you know, his, his tail was between his legs and he, he knew he screwed up. And, you know, if he didn't cooperate, he was probably going to spend literally the rest of his life in prison. What do you think made him flip on Banerjee, Ray? Ray had this um, disease all the children in his, fa- in his family got, and it was you developed cysts on your kidneys. It's, it was going to kill Ray, and you know I think he was at the time, what was he, 47, something like that, when he was working with us. And so I think he realized he was living on borrowed time, and he didn't want to spend that rest of that time inside of prison. He wanted, you know, he wanted to see his wife. He wanted to see his mother. In that respect, he was a family guy. So I think it was a combination of, of all those things. What Gary Ola and Stefanik decide to do after their meeting with Ray is truly incredible. Or, if you're Gary Ola's boss, incredibly risky. They get a judge to agree to release Ray from jail, and then they put him to work. So the plan that we came up with was that we were going to get Cologne at a detention center because he had this ailment, this illness, and we hoped to get him out so that we could um, get him into Banerjee to try and uh, you know get some of these conversations about the conspiracies and the arsons on tape. That was that's the goal. And in order to do that, we couldn't have Ray locked up at the detention center. There's right. So, Wait, did your superiors were that was their issue? Like this guy could run, or like we don't get people out this often. What did they think? Yeah. Unfortunately, headquarters, uh, the Federal Bureau of Interference, as I call headquarters, they decided that you know it's too much of a risk for him to be out. He's a uh, he's an admitted killer. It's too much of a risk, right? Gariola tells his bosses, "Look, there is no other way for us to get this guy. You have to trust us. It's under control." And eventually, very very reluctantly, the higher ups relent. The first night Gariola and Stefanik pick Ray up from prison, they put him in the back seat of their car. Stefanik's at the wheel. Gariola's on the passenger side. I have a five-shot uh, Smith & Wesson on my ankle. I take it off my ankle. Ray sit in the back seat. I said, Ray, grab this. I said, because if you're going to fuck Stefanik and I and take off and screw us, you might as well just put bullets in the back of our head right now. Because I've got, I'm, a, I'm a three-year agent. I said, you're going to fuck my career over. Stefanik's got retirement. You're going to fuck him over. Just kill us right now. And he goes, are you guys stupid? He goes, I've told you, I'm with you 100%, 100%. So, wow. Did uh, any part of you think he was going to act on that? My heart raced a little bit when you told that story. <laughs> no. No, I mean, I, you know, it's, I don't know. Maybe I'm stupid. Maybe I'm ballsy. I, I don't know. Uh, I felt I could trust him 100%. The case against Banerjee is hard to build. The crimes are old. There's very little physical evidence. But now that they have Ray, who knows everything, it's like they can go back in time and try to put the whole story together right from the beginning. And we would uh, have him drive us around Los Angeles, and we want him to show us where this person, Louie, lived. So we got the ad- we got the address for Louie. And then we had him show us um, payphones that he would use to call Banerjee from so we could get records from his payphone. We were corroborating everything that he's telling us to, to try and get evidence 
for the prosecution. It's 1992, nearly a year since the attempted Adonis hit in the UK, five years since Nick Denoya's murder. And all that time, Banerjee has been living large. He now owns Nick's share of the touring rights. He's traveling all over Europe with his British tour promoter, doing calendar shoots and filming a promotional video in Tahiti. We actually got our hands on a bunch of the behind-the-scenes footage from that Tahiti trip, and there's Steve sitting on a boat complaining about how expensive the whole trip is and directing the shots with incredible precision. Okay, what I want you to do, I want this, but see this thing going out, see now the line breaks. This line should be straight, so and your toes should be like that to like a ballet dancer. Uh-huh. Gariola's plan is to get Banerjee on tape, admitting to his crimes. And he also needs to nab Louis Lopez, the guy who pulled the trigger and killed Nick. If Louis admits to killing Nick on tape and then Banerjee admits to contracting Nick's murder, the case is made. From May to December 1992, Ray works on Louis Lopez, who's in Norco prison on drug charges. Louis Lopez is actually an alias. His real name, the FBI comes to find out, is Gilberto Rivera. So you'll hear Ray or Gariola referring to him as Rivera. We're going to keep calling him Louis, though, which is the name Ray knew him by. It's Wednesday, 7.29. It's approximately 7.33. I have just completed the call that I had accepted from Louis Rivera. Ray records at least a dozen calls over the course of about nine months talking to him about old times and mentioning some work he'd like Louis to do once he gets out. The whole time, now, Ray is communicating with Rivera, who's in prison, and we're trying to get Ray to put on Rivera's visiting list so he can go visit him and have a face-to-face conversation. But Louis is cagey, and Ray has to play along. Ray knows that Louis won't discuss specifics on the phone. He refers to Nick as, quote, the guy that we fired from the company. Well, I, I'd rather, if I get to see you, I'll, I'll tell you a person. I hate to talk on his fucking phone. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't want to talk on his phone if I can't, but uh, put me on the list and I'll come and see you. All right. And maybe I could, you know, maybe we could lead, uh, say a little better than on this fucking phone. All right, Ray, then uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot you a later on. On Christmas Eve 1992, Stefanik and Gariola put a wire on Ray and sent him off to meet Louis in person. Whenever you have an undercover tape, people think it's going to be like it is on TV, and oftentimes it's not. This is Steve Clymer, one of the federal prosecutors who worked on the case against Steve Banerjee. There's always extraneous background noise. The people mumble, they talk over each other, somebody's running the water in the background or there's a TV set on. I did another case involving a major drug smuggling organization where an undercover tape had been made and Star Wars was on television. And so when you listen to the tape, it sounds like Darth Vader's in the room with these guys who are talking about a drug transaction. The quality of the recording is not very good. Like this tape in which you can hear, barely, the voices of Stefanik and Gariola as they prep Ray Cologne. December 24th, approximately 11 o'clock p.m. A.M. A.M. This is a special agent Stefanik. Yeah, this is Ray Cologne. Yeah. Stefanik and I are sitting, like, you know, inside a building. They're sitting in a courtyard, and uh, I'm listening to the conversation, writing notes as it's happening. Ray and Louis talk for nearly two hours until visiting hours end. Ray sounds anxious on the recording, telling Louis he's worried they'll be overheard. I don't want to bother. You can talk. We can't hear. 
Are you sure these people ain't hearing me? Uh, they can't hear you. If they do, they can't make it out, Holmes. It's too noisy now. Louis's right. The actual tape sounds terrible, but we were able to get the FBI's transcript of the conversation, along with the original recording, which you'll hear a bit of here, underneath two actors recreating the conversation. Ray and Louis talk about Christmas, and Ray asks about Louis's mom and kids. He buys Louis cigarettes and a burrito from the vending machine. And then eventually Ray steers the conversation to the day of Nick DeNoia's murder five years earlier by marveling at the way Louis escaped the crime scene on the 15th floor right after he shot Nick. Man, you must have ran down those fucking stairs, bro, because that's a lot of fucking floors. There I am. You what? I did run. <laughs> you didn't run. You, you fucking leap, Jack. I'm surprised you didn't have a heart attack. 15 floors. How long did you take to get down? Three minutes? Probably. No more than four. I was down there real quick, like, I don't want to look so suspicious. I don't want to, you know, come out out of breath or nothing. So right before, before I hit the main floor, that's when I slowed down. And I took a second wind, Holmes. Bunned up. Act real cool, calm, collective. I walked out, and I, I just mingled with the rest of the crowd, man. You try to leave the least evidence you possibly can, man. Especially when you're doing something like that, man. That's life, Holmes. The least you'll be doing is 25 years. Nah, that's life. Murder for hire? Shh. Louis is giving Ray exactly what the FBI hoped he would. Ray just keeps egging Louis on, trying to get him to recount exactly what went down that day in Nick's office. Fuck. Antonio was an asshole anyways. Was he? He was an asshole. You know him personally? Nah, I never met him, but I told her he, you know, he fucked up a lot of people. I was always, you know, like... Like, I saw him on TV a few times from a, a, a tape. He was always smiling. Always with this big fucking smiling. But he did more shit too, bro. And they, they had warned this guy. They didn't say they were gonna, you know, whack him. But they warned him. Eventually, Ray brings Louie back to the moment when he was standing in Nick's office, facing him down, gun in hand. Well, he almost shit when he saw you, bro. I mean, come on. Think about it. You or I are just standing there. All of a sudden, a guy walks up to you. Know what I mean? Now the last thing you heard in his whole life was what? I got something for you? That was it? Unbelievable. He just looked up. He was surprised. He was surprised? What made you think he was surprised? At first, he was smiling because he thought it was a joke or something. He started smiling. He looked up. Then when he saw that I'm in business homes, he... His whole expression, his whole face just, just changed, man. He got the fear, man. But I mean, but it was like, it was like a, like, let's say 10 seconds or like. Yeah, it took about five seconds for his facial expression, his face expression. Just changed, man, from back smiling into pure panic. That's all. That's all, that's all. I saw a red dot on his face. I saw him go down. A red dot? What do you mean a red dot? When the bullet went in. 
that was it. That was like, that's all we needed. How'd you feel in that moment? Oh, it's just, well, it's, you know, it's, listen, it's a, it's a major relief, right? Your heart is in your mouth the whole time and you're waiting for him to you know, give you that, that golden nugget and you finally get it. We have a good thing going with him. We have the, on tape is beautiful. We have him out of our hair and now we have Banerjee to worry about. That's the, uh, you know, he's the, uh, the one we have to get, the golden goose. He's the one behind everything. We'll be right back. Scott Gariola and Ray Cologne both know it is not going to be easy to get Banerjee to admit to anything incriminating, especially not to Ray, who's suddenly and inexplicably out of prison. Ray tells Banerjee that he's out on medical leave because of his kidney disease. Banerjee's not buying it, but Ray's persistent. And eventually in the summer of 1992, Banerjee agrees to meet him at a Best Western hotel in Santa Monica. Ray, of course, will be wearing a wire. You know, back in that day... They were not the most stealthy of devices. So I had this uh, great Italian tailor here in Los Angeles, and I took a pair of Ray's shorts to him, and I had him sew in a flap right under Ray's crotch, and I had him sew uh, a Velcro compartment in the uh, waistband of Ray's shorts that we could secrete the wires, the actual recording microphones uh, for Ray. So, uh, What'd the tailor say when you did that? (laughs) When you requested that? He was, you know, he barely spoke English. And I barely, sp- I didn't speak any Italian, but I, you know, we could communicate. So I just told him what I needed. I, I showed him. So I said, I need to put this thing here. I need a flap over it. I need some Velcro. Okay, okay, I'll, I'll get it done. It sounds so, like it could be uh, a costume for a Chippendales number, almost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the Italian tailor turns, takes <laughs> off his collar and cuffs, and there he is. He's in a g-string. Ray walks into the lobby, and Banerjee immediately leads him into the men's room, where he strip searches him. He doesn't find the wire, but he still refuses to speak out loud. Instead, Banerjee writes notes to Ray on little post-it notes and then flushes each one down the toilet after he's done. Ray tries to talk to him, and Banerjee keeps on shushing him. And, you know, we picked picked this up on the wire. There's really not much of a conversation, but there's all these sticky notes are back and forth. And Banerjee is just, he wants to be reassured so badly by Cologne that uh, he's not cooperating with the government. After that meeting, Banerjee goes back to avoiding Ray. He screens his calls, stops responding to his letters. So Gariola and Stefanik hatch a new plan. What if they could somehow meet outside the country? What if they can get to Banerjee when he's on tour in Europe, where he'd be much less suspicious of Ray? And we knew there was no way that Banerjee was going to freely talk to Ray and we were going to be able to get this conversation on uh, on a recording device. Right. So the plan I came up with was, well, let's, you know, let's make Ray a fugitive. Uh, he was going to cut off the ankle monitor. He was going to get a passport and he was going to take off and go to Europe. And when he got to Europe, uh, he would call Steve and get, and get him to come visit him. So Ray tells Banerjee he's going to go on the run. He's going to Europe and Banerjee's whole tone with him changes. Banerjee told Cologne, uh, you know, once we get over there, I'll talk all you want, you know, because, like I said, Banerjee was so interested in being reassured by Cologne, and they, he wanted to talk. And so that was the plan. As you might imagine, it's not an easy thing to get a confessed murderer out of the country, even one who's already working with the government. But Gariola is determined. 
He gets Ray a real passport under a fake name. He gets him an apartment in Rome where they plan to meet up with Banerjee. You could imagine the hand-wringing and head-pulling from FBI headquarters, our office in Rome, and our, my supervisor who was, you know, that we were going to try and take a, a guy who was a, a murder conspirator and take him overseas to, to Rome. You know, in a foreign country, he could just flee from us and then we have no jur- jurisdiction to arrest him. I don't know of another case where they took a cooperating killer out of the country in order to further their investigation. That's Steve Clymer again, the federal prosecutor on Banerjee's case. It was only because the agent, Scott Gariola, was able to get that done and get it done on short notice that we were able to get that piece of evidence. It's not clear to me that we would have had a prosecutable case against Banerjee, but for the fact that Scott was able to get that done. He's a bit of a legend out there. In January 1993, Gariola flies to Rome to begin preparing for the meeting between Banerjee and Cologne. He spends a week getting to know the Italian agents he'll be working with. His partner, Andy Stefanik, arrives with Cologne a week later. They get Banerjee on the phone, and Ray tells him he's there in Rome, he's got a place for them to meet, and then he's eager to talk. And then Banerjee throws a huge wrench in the whole thing. He can't meet his plan, he says. He's actually not coming to Rome. Instead, he's on his way to Switzerland. So he said, come to Zurich. He says, I'll be in Zurich next week. I'm, I'm, I'm doing a show in Geneva. He says, meet me in Zurich. Now we're, you know, we're fuck, man. We're, we're, how are we going to get now? We already convinced headquarters in our office to let us go to Rome. Now we got to go to Zurich, Switzerland. How is that going to happen? Gariola flies into action. The FBI files that I've read are a flurry of faxes, memo, and paperwork, country clearance, travel approval, legal authority to make recordings. They set up a new meeting place, a Hilton hotel in downtown Zurich. Gariola and Stefanik tell Ray to put on a disguise, the way someone on the run would do. So Cologne made up some kind of disguise with a fake mustache, and a, uh, he got himself a beret, and he thought he was French, I guess. And then he, um, we got the Swiss police, and they uh, were able to wire up his jacket uh, that he was wearing. It was, it was winter in Switzerland, so it was very cold. So we, we put the a microphones and a transmitter in his jacket, and we wired up the hotel room. The plan was for Ray to get Steve to meet him at the hotel where Ray is staying. But Banerjee calls Ray when he lands in Zurich. He tells him he wants to meet at a different hotel. So now Ray grabs his jacket, and I go with one of the Swiss police officers, and they go into the uh, this restaurant. And Gariola and the other agents are outside, listening via transmitter. Ray and Steve talk, but at one point Ray takes his jacket off, which has the wire in it. So now we can't hear anything. I said, okay, let me see if I can get Cologne to somehow do a signal for him to put it on. So I go and I'm wearing like an overcoat, a raincoat, like a Burberry coat or something like that. I go in and I'm standing at the entranceway of the restaurant, which is, is in their direct line of sight. And I'm taking my jacket on and off like several times to give Cologne the idea to put the friggin' jacket back on. But Ray doesn't notice Gariola trying to get his attention. So plan B, the Swiss police said, okay, we'll, we'll handle this. They go in, they tell the maitre d' of the restaurant, shut the restaurant down, close it up. It's done for the night. The restaurant closes. The patrons are shuffling out. And when Ray suggests he and Banerjee go back to his hotel room, Banerjee agrees. And I'm in the next room, uh, and we got the room wired 
with microphones and we and we hear the conversation and it is like crystal clear like a recording studio. Once they're in Ray's room, Banerjee finally starts to talk freely. But then the hotel room phone rings. And his eyes got as big as that ashtray. And he said, who's that? I said, oh, it's just the wrong number. Oh, I was just, uh, you know, it could have cost me my life. I mean, he might have had a gun in that suitcase. I don't know. You hear Ray saying, no, no, nobody here by that name. No, hangs up. And then the phone rings in my room, and it's my supervisor calling from the States, wanting to know about an update. And it turned out he had called the three rooms we had rented. He had called all three of the rooms. And so I said, Pat, stop, you know, we'll call you when it's over. You know, pretty much hang up on him. And about two minutes later, it clicks to banners. You're like, who is that on the phone? Who called you? Like, no one knows you're here. Who, who's, who's calling you on the phone? Banerjee starts to panic. He's convinced there's someone in the next room listening in. Ray stays calm. He bangs on the hotel room wall, reassuring Steve, don't worry, these walls are thick. These walls are so hard, boom, 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 boom. You know, we relax, calm yourself. He said, I'll kill myself. I'm like, nah, don't kill yourself, don't worry about it. Ray did a great job of getting him back, talking about everything. And Ray's getting, I mean, they're drinking. Ray's so nervous, he's drinking beer after beer. And Banerjee says, how much you, how much can you drink? And Ray's so, so nervous, they just start talking about the arsons and, and the money, and Banerjee's asking, do they know about the D? Do they know I gave you the money for the guns? And Ray's just telling no, they, I didn't tell him anything. Ray's doing his, his best acting of his life he's doing in, in that room. The entire conversation lasts for five hours into the early morning. I should say here that the tape from this conversation in Zurich, first I heard it was destroyed. Then I heard it still exists, somewhere deep in the bowels of the FBI but no FOIA requests have worked. Nearly 30 years later, Steve Clymer, the federal prosecutor, still remembers every detail. The thing that I remember distinctively was that Banerjee referred to Denoya as D. He never said his name. He just talked about him as, quote, D. And he just didn't, he didn't describe just the, the uh, murder of Denoya. He talked about the fire bombings. He talked about the efforts to try to have the guys in Adonis killed. It was a couple hours long meeting the two of them had, and they covered soup to nuts in that meeting. And you could hear pretty much every word. Gariola says a moment like this is incredibly stressful. Because you're so, you're so wound up and you're so tight and you want everything to go right. And you know, here, here we are, and we just so desperately needed to get this recording mm-hmm. because, I mean, this is going to be our last chance. If we don't get him here, how many more times are we going to be able to come over to Europe and do this and get him the tape? So it was that gotcha feeling, you know. Was there one thing that Banerjee said, like the same way that Rivera said the red dot? Was there a phrase or a sentence he said when you were like, this is it? It was the, uh, he asked, do they know about the D? And then he said, do they know I gave you the money for the guns? Oh, and that was it. Yeah, that was it. Steve kept on talking and talking. At some point, he hung himself. We'll be right back. On the morning of September 2nd, 1993, seven months after that meeting in Zurich, Steve Banerjee pulls his gold Mercedes into the parking lot of the Chippendales office on West Pico Boulevard in L.A. 
Now, Stefanik and I were there waiting in a car across the street. He had a, a surveillance van. And so uh, when he showed up and we got out of the door, Stefanik and I kind of walked up on him and told him uh, we have a warrant for his arrest. And uh, I remember handcuffing him. I remember him sh- his hands were pretty much shaking uh, nonstop. We didn't go out there with guns drawn. Like We weren't afraid of him physically. We weren't worried that he was going to uh, do anything physically because we know he didn't have the courage to do any of that stuff. He hired people to do that stuff. His hands might have been shaking, but Banerjee seemed almost cocky as they took him in. He said something to the effect, I don't remember the exact words, but it was like, you don't have anything on me, and I've got good lawyers. Gariola and Stefanik's relationship with Ray would last beyond the moment of Steve Banerjee's arrest. Ray still had jail time to serve for his involvement in the murder of Nick DeNoia, but his sentence got reduced for helping with the case. And the agents arranged for him to serve some of that sentence in a medical facility. When Ray was finally released in 1996, his health had gotten quite bad. Gariola and Stefanik took Ray to dialysis while they prepped him for the murder trial, where Ray would testify against Louis Lopez. Ray was so wrapped up in his own problems. Mm-hmm. You know, he was having heart problems and kidney problems and marital problems and, you know, all the stuff was hitting him at once. You know, we'd, uh, we had to go, Andy and I had to go give blood for him and stuff like that. You gave blood, blood for him? For, Your own blood? Yeah, yeah. We had to do blood transfusions for him. Wow. So, uh, yeah, he, was, he spent a lot of time in the hospital here in, in Los Angeles. We had to go visit him in the hospital and stuff like that. Yeah, listen, a little selfishly too, we want to make sure he survived. But even after, even after, even after the trial, yeah. you know, you establish this you know, relationship with somebody, you're just not going to, you know, I'm not that kind of person where I'm going to just, you know, kick you to the curb. I don't want nothing to do with you. I, you're a bad guy. And it's... Right. Did you have other cases where you'd have that kind of rapport in your informant? Or is, I don't know, it sounds, I'm not in the business, right? But it sounds like, yeah. wow, that's not the relationship I'd expect. No, I mean... <laughs> I've had a bunch of bunch of crazy cases, and you know Henry Hill from Goodfellas and Whitey Bulger and stuff like that. But just um, I mean, nothing. Not, not, you know, this relationship with Ray was like uh, I mean, from the moment we met him in '91 till he passed away in, in 2002. Mm-hmm. So we had a 10-year relationship with him. I mean, in the course of my career, I. Uh, you know, you work with criminals so much, whether as informants or you listen to them on wiretaps that, you know, I don't want to say, well, you kind of develop a bond sort of with them because right. if you don't, you know, if you treat them like dirt, then they're not going to work with you, not going to work for you, and you're not going to get the truth out of them. So you have to, I mean, you have to treat them, you know, listen, I believe in, you know, I believe in confessions and, you know, making right with your maker and stuff like that. I, you know, I believe, you know, everybody deserves a second chance, but... You know, what Ray did was horrible. There's no no doubt about it. Yeah. At his core, is he a bad person? I mean, that's, you know, I'm not going to judge him. Next time, the saga of Steve Banerjee finally comes to a close. I I'd never had a defendant do that on the night before sentencing before. It was, it was, it was shocking. And the legend of Chippendales continues in the minds of those who lived it. When I die, women will come with their beefcake calendar 
and in the lives of the women who still, to this day, turn out for a good show. She's got all her dollars in her wallet. She can't wait. Are you ready to use those dollars? Oh, definitely. <laughs> We're horny old ladies. <laughs> Welcome to Your Fantasy is a production of Pineapple Street Studios in association with Gimlet. It's hosted by me, Natalia Petrozella. Our senior producer is Eleanor Kagan. Our producer is Christine Driscoll, and our associate producer is Erin Kelly. Nicole Hemmer and Neil J. Young are consulting producers. Our editors are Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprongkaiser. It was mixed by Hannes Brown and fact-checked by Ben Phelan. Our voice actors were Jerry Pinzone and Isaid De La Fuente. Casting by Harrison Nesbitt. This show features original music by Dow and Anthony, and thanks to our music supervisor, Jasmine Flott. The executive producers at Pineapple Street are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. From Gimlet, our executive producer is Lydia Polgreen, and our editor is Colin Campbell. We've got a Spotify playlist with tons of music from the original show, so you can create the club experience for yourself in the comfort of your own home. You can find the link in the show notes. For behind-the-scenes footage, photos, clips, and more, check out our Instagram account, Chippendales Revealed. That's our handle, Chippendales Revealed. Did you ever go to Chippendales? We want to hear about it. Leave us a short voicemail, 30 seconds to a minute tops, at 323-475-9424. And we might play it on a future episode. That's 323-475-9424. This is a Spotify original podcast. Spotify original podcast.